Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Les Boheme, a Hollywood screenwriter whose credits include The Alamo, A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, as well as some of the biggest disaster movies of the 1990s, including Dante's Peak and Daylight, starring Sylvester Stallone. Daylight was produced by Universal in 1996 and follows Stallone as Kit Latura, who, after a sudden explosion inside the Holland Tunnel, leads a rescue mission to save the few remaining survivors before the structure collapses. Today's episode was recorded to mark the 25th anniversary of the film. And to celebrate, we're trying something a little different. Before our main event, we briefly welcome on the show a special guest, one of the stars of Daylight, 83-year-old Colin Fox, a Canadian actor who also appeared in Tommy Boy, and who in today's film plays Roger Trilling, one of the tunnel survivors along with his wife, played by Claire Bloom, and their dog, Cooper. We discuss memories from shooting the movie almost entirely in a backlot in Rome, doubling for New York City, and working on one of the largest indoor sets at the time, which was flooded on a daily basis. Here's my chat with Colin Fox. Colin, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's wild to think about your journey as an actor. For listeners, you started at the National Theatre School of Canada in 63, Correct me if I'm wrong, then you moved to New York in 82. So I'd like to ask if you'd take us back to that period of your career as Daylight was in pre-production in the summer of 95. How do you remember Daylight entering your life as a project? It was absolutely wonderful. It was like uh, something magic. I had uh, met Rob Cohen and we had a great conversation together in New York. I had lived in New York for about 10 years preceding this casting time in 1995. When we talked, we got along very well, right from the beginning. And he said something. He said, I reminded him of his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law, Rob said, was always one of these people who was meticulously polite. And he wanted the character to be like that. And I don't know whether I exhibited that kind of quality, but it was something he liked. And so the next thing I knew, I got a call from my agent that uh, we were on. Before getting into the making of Daylight, I was telling you we had the luxury of speaking to the screenwriter of the film about the emotional purpose of ensemble films and the importance in a story like this of not only fleshing out secondary characters, but allowing for some of them to unfortunately be lost along the way, Yes, usually in the order that's going to have the greatest emotional impact for the story. So rewatching the movie, I was honestly struck by the arc your character is given, along with your character's wife. And with Cooper, the dog, who has, you know, taken on a childlike role in the story after the two of you have lost your son, Jonathan. So I wonder how did the experience feel meaningful, not only for the major exposure I'm sure the project was going to bring you, but also in in actually getting to play a pretty three-dimensional character. Well, that was the thing that Rob wanted, and I really have to give him credit for it, because he wanted to make sure in the developing of the script that this wasn't just going to be a series of stock characters who are disposable or who are there just for the moment and then pass on. 
What's interesting about this film, and Stallone said this himself, this really isn't an action film. If you look at it, there's no bad guy. The real element that they're all facing is this tunnel, which has exploded, trapped them all inside. They're entombed in a very, very dangerous place. And eventually, as the film continues, the tunnel becomes more of a threat and an enemy than anything else. And we have to get out of there somehow to survive. So there is this feeling of urgency, a feeling of desperation and anger to start with. And then finally, it melds into a way that we can all help each other and somehow save each other, even though we fail to do so with the character that Stan Shaw played. We mentioned you moving to New York, and at the time, Daylight was this $80 million machine, you know, a Stallone Christmas blockbuster, which is set, yes, in New York, but for the most part was shot entirely in Italy between the September of 95 and February of 96. So I kind of wonder how did your perception of the project evolve from the way you thought the experience of making it was going to be to the way it actually turned out? Well, what is fascinating about it is that I've never actually been in a film which shot in sequence. The only other film I've heard of is The Poseidon Adventure, in which this ship turns over and people have to get out of the ship by going from chamber to chamber. And it's the same with this. And all the sound stages, I think there are 13 sound stages in Cinecita, a huge studio city in Rome. And we used a lot of them in order to go from stage to stage and are trying to get out of the tunnel. I had no idea about the size or scale of a movie this big. I've been in film and I've been in films where there have been pieces of special effects and things like that. But something that was so meticulously arranged and done was very well planned. What they also did, which was a great favor to the actors, they would only work probably from roughly nine to five, almost like a work day, and then quit and carry on the next day. And we would not work on weekends because slogging through that water day after day and dealing with the fire effects and dealing with all the stuff, actually, even though you may be waiting a lot and not doing a lot as an actor, turned to be quite tiring. So we found a way of uh, working together. And then in the off times, when we're sitting there on wrecked cars and waiting for the camera to reposition itself or the lighting to change, we would just sit around telling jokes and getting on very well. Our, our son, Jonathan, he, he went trekking in Nepal. He uh, caught some kind of a fever. Nothing could be done, they said. We lost him. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I did. Ever since Jonathan died, Cooper's all had left. Yes, I spoil him. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. I'm curious to ask you then about the sets of the film. You know, the concept of building a third of a mile long replica of the Holland Tunnel in the back lot of Cinecitta in Rome. With all the time, I'm sure it must have required to set up fire gags, flooding the tunnel on a daily basis. How do you think experiencing such an intense and special effects driven movie brought the cast closer together? Yes, absolutely right. This was the transition point in film history because this film was dependent on a great deal of actual things happening as you see them. Whereas today, so much is done in computer-generated imaging. There was a lot of imaging done, indeed, with that fireball coming through the tunnel and all of that. 
But those elements where you'd see tiles coming out of the wall and things breaking through and then the collapse ahead of the tunnel and then the feeling of the river coming down through, those were all actually happening in real time. And we had to stand back with all the cameras rolling and just to see what would happen. So it really had an immediate effect of you're really there. And it, it's uh, unlike films which now have uh, green screen and do a lot of things. And then they say, look over here because something's coming at you. Well, in this film, it did come at you. There was no question about it. So in a sense, that kind of made us realize that we were in something that was a really amazing project. None of us, I don't think any of the actors except Sly Stallone and maybe one or two others have ever been in a film as physically active and demanding as Daylight. The scope of the production is just enormous. You know, the vehicles were all shipped from the United States over to Italy. Yes. And I, I just wonder, even the entrance of the tunnel itself must have been rebuilt on the back lawn in Rome. That's right. There were two buildings. One was in the States, which was in a special effects uh, area where they built the exterior of the Holland Tunnel. And the Holland Tunnel had this emblematic sort of uh, goddess figure and then the, the arch itself. That was all done in miniature as well. So everything was down to scale. Even the cars were about maybe one third their size and they were all lined up and then crushed by the explosion and all of that going on. That was there. But the same thing in full size was built in Italy, in Rome. And so we went through the whole thing again, seeing it both in the miniature and then in the real large size in order to intercut between the two for all the effects of the explosion. Because there is so many shots. I think they have a hundred setups for the explosion itself. Yeah. We had a lot of time off because they would have special effects. They, we don't need you today because we're doing these effects. We just, you know, have the day off, which in Rome is not hard to take. I think over time, I could speak for myself, certainly, in seeing it again, which I have done recently, Brando, just to refresh myself. And I was so impressed with it, seeing it again, because I didn't, when I first looked at it, I would say, oh, yes, I remember that, I remember that. Now you don't remember all those things. You're seeing not something just through the eyes of an actor saying, oh, I think I look pretty good in that. I wasn't so good in that. You just forget all that and get into the story. And it really is quite gripping. Miss Cooper. Where's Cooper? It broke. I couldn't hold it. I can't try. I can't lose. Ellie. I can't. Ellie. No. No. Where's Jonathan? Look, look, Eleanor, listen to me. Listen to me. We can't bring them back. They're both gone. We can't change that. We've got to help each other. I'm happy that although brief, we had an excuse to to talk about the film. I'm grateful for you taking the time to rewatch it. So thank you. Thank you. I just want to say that. My pleasure, Brando. And thanks. And uh, enjoy. I hope people will have a chance to look at it again. It's wonderful. And now to our main conversation with screenwriter Les Boheme. In this emotionally honest conversation, the 70-year-old and I dive deep into the making of Daylight, which along with Dante's Peak, was inspired by disaster movies of the 1970s like Towering Inferno and Earthquake. We discuss Les's beginnings, raised as the son of two Hollywood screenwriters, 
who worked during the silent era and his father's advice to break into the business. The spec boom of the late 80s, early 90s, and Hal Les sold his spec screenplay for Daylight before being replaced by other writers. What it was like to discuss story with Steven Spielberg, who hired Les in the early 2000s for a TV project? Also, Les's emotional experience picking up a screenplay his late father had written in 1935 and completing it nearly 60 years later and turning it into the movie 20 Bucks. With an ensemble cast that includes Steve Buscemi, Christopher Lloyd, and Brendan Fraser, and shot by cinematographer Emmanuel Chivo Lubetsky, all of this and much more. If you enjoy your program, please help us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us continue to bring you new episodes. But now, without further ado, here's my conversation with screenwriter Les Boheme. If you look at, you know, if it, one of the many reasons why so many of the golden age directors are so good, in addition to the fact that they're so good, is that they made a thousand times more movies than anybody gets to. Yeah, do you know how many silent movies John Ford directed before you ever get to The Lodger or any of his class, you know, early classics? I mean, right. Right. And when you think of it, you know, what's kind of amazing about Billy Wilder is that he didn't feel the need to direct every screenplay he'd write. Like he just focused on being a good storyteller. My dad knew him at, at Paramount. You know, he, he although he directed in, in Germany before he came here, he really like, he, you know, they, they had a writer's table and a director's table at the commissary. And he would always sit at the writer's table. You know, he worked with Lubitsch and he didn't like what they'd done to some of his scripts. He didn't like what Mitchell Eisen did to, to I can't remember, the one with Charles Boyer and Olivia de Havilland. And one time my father went in his editing room and he had four feet of film on the floor. He literally, he, he cut everything in camera because he didn't want to get recut. Filmmaking was a little more standardized then in terms of, you know, when you went from the master to the close-ups and stuff like that. But he literally, like, he only shot part of the scene that was going to be in the master that he knew was going to be in the master because he didn't want to get recut. He was doing that on the Paramount movies. That's Double Indemnity, you know, The Lost Weekend. I mean, that, that, that's some pretty good movies. <laughs> My family, during the pandemic, we've had a, um, there's six of us staying here. We have, so we have a movie night once a week. You know, everybody's, you know, I mean, it could be Baby Driver one week. You know, it's all over the place. And after making everybody sit through a couple of Fassbender movies, my deal was Billy Wilder every time. <laughs> and I swear to God, the man never made a bad movie. I feel like we could talk about the golden age for hours. So why don't we just jump ahead and discuss your 30 years of experience in the business, both in film and television. And I was curious to, to ask you, you know, what elements of the business you felt like were unique when you think of being a writer in the late 80s and early 90s. And looking back now, as you start out as a writer, there's a part of your time is dedicated to spec scripts as well. So are you surprised by the kind of stories you're writing at the time? My journey into screenwriting, as it were, my stumble into screenwriting, I should say. I, um, my parents were both writers and my mother, she wrote several movies. She was a reader at Paramount. She, she wrote for 50s and 60s television. And she hated it so much, she went back to school, became a special collections librarian at UCLA, and then opened a rare book and photograph business. And my dad, who's a bit older, was, you know, he'd start, my dad wrote for silent movies. 
and he had produced the TV show Rawhide. My father had a really interesting kind of mid-level career. So what I got from my parents was that what grownups did when they went to work was they went in the other room and typed. But my father was out of the business. My mother would always say that if my father had been willing to socialize, he would have had a better career. So nepotism did like absolutely nothing for me. My, my dad produced Rawhide, which, you know, broke Clint Eastwood. So my first script was a, a spec I wrote with a friend of mine that was going to be, we thought, well, we'll write Dirty Harry 3. Actually, it might have been Dirty Harry 2. There might have only been one Dirty Harry at the time. Yeah, it was. It was Dirty Harry 2. We finished the script and I said, so can you give it to Clint Eastwood? And he was like, eh, I haven't seen him since 1963. And I was like, well, what do I do? And he said, well, get an agent, but don't sign with William Morris. <laughs> My first agent actually was a William Morris agent, in spite of that. So I was playing in some rock and roll bands and one of them was popular. And um, my wife, then girlfriend was working at the Las Feliz Theater and I was visiting her one night. And this friend of mine who had been the drummer in all my bands in college and who I'd known in high school came into the theater. His name was Stuart Kornfeld. He had just started working for producing for Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft. He wound up producing The Elephant Man and The Fly. Then he worked for Ben Stiller. He did Tropic Thunder. And Stuart had an amazing career. And was a wonderful and really funny guy. And we decided we would try to write something together. We wrote something. And then the band I was in was doing some TV shows in France. And I was there being the pretend bass player. He mined the song and pretended to play. And Stuart called me and said, the lad company and the head of Atlantic records have this idea for a movie. And I told them that you play music and speak in complete sentences and they want to talk to you. So they flew me back from Paris and I just shaved my head for a video for my band. So I, I look nastier than I probably am. I was jet lagged and there were drugs involved and they told me their idea and I told them it was terrible and they hired me in the room. I talk about this a lot that I, I've seen that work for so many people, the high school dating theory, like act like you don't care and everybody loves you. I've never been able to recreate that. Anytime I try to be, you know, professionally arrogant, it bites me in the ass. But in this case, I got the job and for about four or five years, I did both. I played in the two bands and I was hired to write scripts about rock and roll. The early 80s, so things are very star-driven in the movie business. What was happening around me was the end of all the great 70s stuff. Decades don't end on the dot. The movie business around me behaved as if it were still the 70s. And in fact, it was turning into the sort of, you'd see it happening in television now. Somebody sneaks one past the goalie and everybody starts to make rules about how to sneak one past the goalie. You know, it was, it was moving from Chinatown to Flashdance as I was starting. It was a very star-driven business. I was cheap because I was a new writer. So the junior development executive would hire me and then their boss would say, well, there's no part for Kevin Costner. He's not playing a rock star. So nothing got made. I kept getting hired. And the only other job a rock and roll guy could get was horror movies. I had done some work for Sean Cunningham on a couple of the Friday the 13th. And I rewrote a script for him that was supposed to be House 3, but House 2 didn't do well. So... You know, I think it was House 3 in Korea and everywhere else where House 2 hadn't done well, it was called The Horror Show. And that was my first credit. Somewhere in all of that, I had pitched for Nightmare 3, why don't you steal Rosemary's baby? You know, Freddie has a baby. And I was pitching to a very pregnant woman and she was very offended by my pitch, which was, 
the unborn fetus clawing its way out with the Freddy claw. <laughs> and um, then New Line called me and said, we have this idea for the fifth nightmare on Elm Street. Freddy has a baby. <laughs> and A, they called me. So maybe somewhere in their genetic memory was the, like less bohem Rosemary's baby. It wasn't like, oh, they ripped me off and then had to make up for it. It was just complete an utter coincidence, you know, that we both thought of ripping off Rosemary's baby or that maybe they remembered it. Anyway, I wound up writing The Fifth Nightmare on Elm Street. So now I had credits and then I started getting occasional weird work. Like I did some rewrites on two Van Damme movies and stuff like that. You know, it's still a lot. I mean, 95% of what I've written hasn't been made, which is like, I think that's a pretty good ratio for most screenwriters. But you asked about specs and I was writing specs and all the things I've ever had made in however many years my, for want of a better word, career has gone on, all of them have either been specs, whether they were little movies like 20 bucks or this movie I wrote back in the 80s called Kid or Daylight and Dante's Peak. They were either specs or they were something that was going to get made whether I wrote it or somebody else did. Like somebody was going to write Nightmare 5. But I've, at last count, I've had 57 development deals in features and maybe 30 in television. None of them have ever been made. It's a phantom industry. It seems to have very little to do with the actual movie. Let me ask you about that, because I was going to keep this for later, but it seems like a good moment. I was curious to ask you about your relationship with your own creativity and these unmade projects or projects which I like to think are yet to, you know, to get made. That's nice of you. This quote of yours from a 2016 interview, quote, I have a backlog of ideas I haven't gotten to yet. They may suck, but they're mine. And I think I've got enough to occupy my remaining typing years, close quote. Where did I say that? I like that. That was a good quote. <laughs> That's usually what I say when, when, when somebody says, I have a great idea for a movie. And I'm like, why are you telling me? Like, I, I, I have my own great or bad ideas. Yeah. Again, the, the Alamo may have been the last feature screenplay you wrote, but it's, there have been so many you've continued to develop since. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious to ask you, what is your conversation, again, with your own creativity and what it's like to reclaim all the time and energy you invest in one project. And once you have a feeling they may not happen, you kind of got to reset on that energy and creativity and shift it onto something new. First of all, you know, I guess it's the only place where I try to be Buddhist about it, but it's like, you know, you have to believe that getting there is all the fun. And so I live in a constant state of positive denial. When I'm working on something, I not only have to believe that it'll be made, I have to believe that it'll be made the way I'm writing it. I think um, the one credit you'll find after the Alamo is The Darkest Hour, which is a spec I wrote with, with a friend of mine. And she had never written professionally before before she was even in the guild, she had already been fired and was being rewritten, you know? So she sold a spec and got it completely trashed. She had the entire experience in three and a half months. That was a spec that was bought because someone had money and a director and Russia. And they bought a spec set somewhere in the Midwest and just somehow that, you know, filled a slot. Like I said, it's completely positive denial. There's no other way to do it. And honestly, I have a very easy time when I'm writing, forgetting that. 
you know, I was saying to somebody recently, like, I'm a grown man and people are paying me to make shit up. That's like all I've, you know, the last real job I had, I was 17, 18, working in a clothing store. So I'm like Chris Guest in Spinal Tap. It's like, oh, I could work at a boutique, right? It's, it's like literally the only other thing I could do is fold a shirt or play a bass line, you know, neither of which will ever support me. So yeah, you fool yourself. I enjoy writing. So it's just like, it's, it's you know, the frustrations are, are obvious, but when I'm actually doing it, I like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> I brought up the Alamo in Not Darkest Hour just because when I see story by credit, but not screenplay by, I just imagine horrific stories behind the scenes. So I, I uh, apologize if I didn't mention oh, that. Oh, no, no, I am not. It's, I mean, Chris Gorak, who directed it, is an incredible director, but I've never seen the movie. I don't know. I mean, it's not. I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to correct you. I was just trying to think of what the last one was. We said that, and that's all. The guild arbitration process, which constantly needs to be revised, is is a nasty beast. Before shifting into projects, I figured I would take two steps back. And you mentioned twenty bucks as well. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned your father was a writer and a producer from the late twenties to the late sixties, both in film and TV. And again, I'll ask you about twenty bucks in just a second. But I was wondering for you how your appreciation for his own writing evolved from the way you might have experienced it as a child to the way you do now. It's funny. I, I found a movie called Happy Go Lucky that my father got a credit on in the early thirties. And I've experienced this twice because my father worked on the Greta Garbo and a Karenina. That was before the Guild and he wasn't famous. So they put another writer's name on Anna Karenina because it's a Garbo movie and put his name on a John Gilbert movie that he'd written one scene in. The studios would do that. I was watching the Garbo movie and there's a scene where she puts her son to bed and it was the way my father always put me to bed. So I was like, oh, he really did write this. Just what I wanted. The whole world. Wait, let's plan a trip. A trip. Here we are in St. Petersburg. Where do you want to take me? My dad was hard on himself, and Hungarians are notoriously depressed. My father often said that screenwriting was to real writing, like being a dishwasher was to being a fine chef. And all he ever wanted to do was write a novel. So I think I inherited a little bit of that. I don't agree with him, but I like prose. So, you know, I, I do write fiction as well. But I'm just kind of stunned by the breadth of his career, you know, because it's just like, like from silent movies through late 60s television, a couple of movies, you know, at the end of the 60s. He went back to Hungary to make a movie in the late 60s. So, I mean, you grow up in a company town, you kind of don't realize that until like when I first went away to college and people would ask me about my dad and then, I'm really going off the mark here, but I, I just remember some friends of mine coming back to spend Christmas with us and they were asking my dad questions and he started telling these stories and they were, they were like, oh, well, when I met Gene Harlow and I was like, you met Gene Harlow? You know, I was like, I remember once going to a screening with my dad and I, I mean, I was so far from being a Hollywood kid in spite of being a Hollywood kid, you know, I, like my dad had been, I would say brown listed, like he's not on a list of people who were blacklisted, but from about 1950 until he got the rawhide gig in the sixties, he barely worked. Well, we all knew why. So we didn't grow up Hollywood rich. And then he got the rawhide gig and we moved from studio city where, you know, my mother's father was paying our rent to Hollywood because he had a real gig. So it was more like a normal company town sort of story. But anyway, I was at this screening when my dad took me to a screening and Edward G. Robinson was coming out. It was old Edward G. Robinson with the beard. He looked like Soylent Green, Edward G. Robinson. And my dad had written a movie for him and produced a movie. 
for him. And, and he introduced me and Edward G. Robinson said, your father is the nicest man in show business. So Edward G. Robinson is my favorite actor of all time. I was so happy to read about 20 Bucks, which was made in 93 after your father passed. But just to create context for listeners, it's about, this is so simple and yet so poetic, a $20 bill, which weaves in and out of the lives of several people. And from my research, I discovered that Correct me if I'm wrong, but you picked up an unfinished screenplay, which your dad wrote all the way back in 35. It was a script. Yeah, I think we, we figured out there's one movie that took longer to get made. People didn't write specs as much then. You know, they were, I mean, my dad worked as a writer at every studio and you were just in a cubbyhole and they came in and went, college musical. <laughs> it, there had been a couple of these, they called them omnibus films. There was Tales of Manhattan that followed a, a dinner jacket. And there was uh, If I Had a Million, which was, you know, shorts of people having a million dollars. And my dad had this script where he followed a $20 bill and he always loved it. And I had started like, working professionally and like all writers my parents were really you know panicked that I would become a writer and instead I dropped out of school and played in a rock band so by, by the time I was a writer they were just oh thank god he's got something like a job so my dad gave me the script and I loved his script and I started adapting it and then my then agent found Kiva Rosenfeld and Karen Murphy Kiva directed it Karen produced it we started working on the script and by the time we made the movie, there's nothing left of my dad's script except the concept. But when I watched the movie, I think it's all about parents and children. Even like the crime story, the Chris Lloyd, Steve Buscemi story is like the wise older criminal and, and the novice. If I'd set out to write a movie about my father, I don't think it would have been anything like that. But when I watch it, it's like, you know, there's the girl finding the poem she wrote in her dad's wallet after he dies. That's something that actually happened to my father with his father. So I'm very proud of that movie, but it, it's an accidental tribute to my dad. The ship docked in Galveston. I had 72 reals in my pocket. It was all the money I had in the world. There was a bank across the street. I went inside. The cashier took my money and she counted it twice, very carefully. Then she opened a drawer and handed me my new money. One $20 bill. I took that bill and I sat down in a bench that was there in the bank. I sat and I stared at my first real piece of America. I guess for most immigrants, it's the Statue of Liberty, the New York skyline, the Golden Gate Bridge. But for me, it was that $20 bill. I can picture the box downstairs in, in the basement of my parents' house where my father would pull stuff out. There's a couple other ones that I think are, he, he wrote a Western that's um, belligerent in that it's the only Western I've ever read where the people are going east, not west. It's about a trail boss who's finished his trail drive having to take the Japanese ambassador back to Washington. If the Western ever makes yet another comeback, I'm trying that one next.
allow me to do a full 180 at this point and just spend yes. the next portion of our conversation talking about your process writing daylight. Natural disaster movies seem to be typical of the 70s. You know, we, we emailed about Towering Inferno and the Poseidon Adventure. Earthquake, roller coaster. <laughs> In the mid 90s, there seems to be kind of a renaissance because Universal specifically is making like back to back, like Daylight, Twister, Dawn to Speak. We can talk about Volcano, by the way. You know, I know a lot of people say to me to be nice, you know, Dante's Peak was so much better than Volcano. I love Volcano. That's a cooler idea to me <laughs> than my own. Shortly after the, the Nightmare on Elm Street moment, you know, my wife and I bought our first house on that money. And I'm gonna knock on my desk, but I, I've never, since 1981, I haven't been out of work, but I've had gaps. So my biggest gap was, in the year after Nightmare on Elm Street. And I mean, it was very middle-class trouble, but all the appliances we bought with the Nightmare money were breaking and the house needed a lot of work and the mortgage was due. And, you know, when I say it's middle-class poverty, it's like, gee, we would have had to move to an apartment or move in with my folks for a while. It was a tragedy here, but it wasn't looking good for my career. There was a, a new producer named Joe Singer. He's a really interesting guy. He was super aggressive. And my agent set up a lunch with him, what they call a general meeting. You know, he, he was coming on hard and he was like, you know, everybody in town knows what a good writer you are. You're a really good writer. Now, if anybody ever tells you the writing's good, that's the kiss of death. That's like, you know, can we just be friends? So you're a really good writer, but you don't think commercially. And Towering Inferno had just been on TV. And so I was just being kind of bitchy and I was like, I think commercially, I like disaster movies. What if I trap 50 people in the Holland Tunnel on a really hot day? And we both got quiet. Because you know, it's like, like, you know, you're always told, tell it to me in a sentence. You know, the, the great movies are always told, you know, that's the pitch. I've had literally that and one other idea that somebody told me in my entire career that were one sentence ideas. And that was one of them. So I said, if you can send me to New York and get me in a tunnel, I'll write a script. And this is pre 9-11. So Paul Maniscalco, who we thank in the title page, he was a EMS chief in Manhattan. They shut down the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel for me. They literally, like they, they blocked both ends and I got to go in the tunnel. It was, it was crazy, the stuff we got to do. I had this very, what I consider adult conversation with myself where you know I basically said, you can't keep saying that they're so stupid because if they're so stupid, why don't you have more of their money? Play by the rules. And this was the tail end almost of the insane spec sale boom of the late 80s, early 90s. People were selling specs just left and right. And, and it was, you know, there was all this excitement, like there would be bidding wars or Agents would rent a room at the Beverly Hills Hotel and say, you have to come and read the script in this room and you can't leave the room and just read it. And all this kind of craziness. So I read Friends screenplays. I read Billy Wilder's screenplays, but I, I, I rarely read screenplays. And I read every single action screenplay that it sold. So it's a lot of Shane Black. I think I read a couple of my friend, Randy Feldman's, who's a fantastic writer of that period. And I was like, okay, I'm a play by the rules. I'm going to do this one, you know, by the numbers. And you've read my spec, like, you know, there's gay hitmen pursuing their quarry. I mean, like, I just, I think it's why so many writers I know are so jealous of, of Quentin Tarantino, because 
we all have naughty fingers and do that stuff. And he gets to leave it in the movies. I would have written that little Big Mac scene and they would have cut it out. <laughs> so I wrote the script in, you know, probably six, eight weeks, you know, even with the rewrites that, you know, Joe had notes. One of the things that, that Joe was brilliant about, because he had sold a bunch in those couple of years, was um, he grabbed them at the beginning. If you remember, the opening of the script is... Is the World Trade Center, right? Yeah, that, uh, there's like a window washer trap on the top of the tower and... Kit, the hero, goes up the wrong tower and, and then has to use like cable and a helicopter. To, and it was, it was a ridiculous scene. It probably even then would have cost $20 million just to do the scene. And the script sold when people reading it were on page 10. And that was completely Joe. Like he made up that scene. I wrote it. We popped it in there and we all knew it would never make the movie. We got the script to a place where he liked it. It went out in the morning and I was offered four times as much as I'd ever been paid. And everybody in my orbit, including Joe, was like, turn it down, we'll do better. We turned it down and they told us if we turned it down, they withdrew the offer forever. You know, like we couldn't come back to them. And then for the entire day, people passed. And then at like 7.30 that night, Universal bid. Honestly, I guess I could tell the story at this point. Like you'll you'll see, um, Joe worked for John Davis, and John really hadn't been involved in the script at all. He had this kind of deal where he had all these mini producers who would just develop projects. He gave them an office and sort of like you could use his name, et cetera. And this is producer one on one. The one thing that John did was he told Universal that Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to be in the movie, which was not true, and. I think that helped sell the movie. <laughs> so what are we looking at? We don't know the stress points in the mid-river. We can't risk any explosives. It's all got to be done by hand. It's going to take forever. If another shaft don't give, 10, 12 hours minimum. How long is the air going to hold? Three hours max. All right, Frank, here's what I think we ought to do. I think you got to cork it up and seal off the survivors from the fumes until you can dig out the mid-river passage. What do you think? We had sold daylight for to my mind, a nice chunk of money. And I had said about the idea to my friends, well, it's writer-proof, you know, like they're just gonna like the idea. And they literally, the first meeting they had after buying the script was, who do we get to rewrite it? I was like the first question asked in the room. Like, like I wasn't obviously in that room because I wasn't one of the guys who, who wrote those things. And I hung on for a little while. I did, a, I did one rewrite for them. I mean, I was learning all this stuff because I had been like off in horror movie land and development land and indie land. And I worked on a NBC TV show for a while. So, you know, it was like, I'd never seen the Shane Black land, big spec land. They had a, a list of maybe 40 directors and they went down the list and they get to number 40 and he says yes. And it immediately becomes a Rob Cohen film, right? Like, and, you know, the Writers Guild fights a lot for name of the, the possessory credit. I couldn't care less about the possessory credit. I just think there should be possessory blame. It's like, if you're putting your name above the title and it's a film by you, then I don't want the fifth paragraph of the LA Times Review to say, in Mr. Boheme's script. <laughs> I worked for a little bit on the script with Rob. And then, it's an interesting thing. This was one of the interesting sidebars to scripts of the nine, action scripts of the 90s, was they would generally hire someone who had either done rom-coms or had gotten an actress nominated for an Academy Award or had an English accent. And that person would always come in and say, 
The action sequences are perfect. The guy's character needs a little work. The woman's character is really weak. And first of all, most of my career has been writing for and about women. And I pride myself on being able to write about people, you know, regardless of gender. So when I say this, I say it meaning no disrespect to women, but meaning disrespect to the action genre of the 90s and the bulk of the audience. I don't think there are a hundred people in the world who go to see a Sylvester Stallone movie caring about the woman's character, right? So to me, that was licensed to make her interesting and good because if that's not what anybody's watching, you know, if what they're watching is action, explosions, excitement, then that's licensed to make everything else in the movie interesting. And I think you see this as movies get worse, fewer and fewer people are taking advantage of the fact that there are rules that need to be honored for 20 minutes of the movie. And that leaves you, you know, an hour 20 to, to do good stuff. At some point, somebody either at Universal or maybe it was one of the producers, not Joe, I got this note saying, there's no antagonist. And I was like, well, God. And there was a real heavy push to have terrorists blow up the tunnel. And thankfully for, you know, my conscience, <laughs> that never happened. Anyway, the first guy they hired to rewrite it was a really good friend of mine named Kevin Wade, who had, who had written Working Girl. He's a terrific writer, a really, really good writer. We actually became friends over him rewriting me. <laughs> and they didn't use any of his script. Rob wound up rewriting most of it on the set. I mean, not on the set, but just, you know, while they were shooting. I'm told that Stallone worked on it as well. Part of the reason, and I'm very thankful for this financially, that I received sole credit is that the people doing most of the writing were not being paid to write. I mean, the only writers involved in the arbitration, you know, the discussion of who gets credit were, were Kevin and me. And that was just a completely friendly discussion about how little he'd done. Joe Singer was hounding me from the moment I finished daylight to write a volcano movie. And I was like, when I'm Sterling Siliphant now, I'm doing earthquake and towering inferno, like <laughs> in the other order, I guess. And this was also, this was a time when, again, learning about the 90s process, every producer had these development people whose entire job was to track scripts and have ideas. And you could lose your job if a spec script sold that your boss didn't know about. And the fact that Frank Marshall was about to make a Volcano movie that he gave up on, Volcano came out. I was told that Michael Crichton stopped writing a novel about a volcano because why would he bother? I always kind of suspected that somebody in some food chain at some party somewhere, you know, heard that and then came to their boss, in this case, Joe, and said, I have an idea. We should make a movie about a volcano. Because there would be for them no downside in that. If he said no, and then it was announced that somebody else was making a volcano movie, he would look good. And if he said yes, he would look good. Because I cannot believe that it was a coincidence that there were four volcano projects all at once. But I wrote that script mostly because Joe wouldn't leave me alone. He's a very persistent guy, and it was easier to write the script than to keep fielding his phone calls. He developed it as a producer, and then he was hired as, I believe, president of production at Universal. So he actually, it was like, he tossed the football and then caught it. <laughs> and uh, that, was, that was my action moment. Great job, Harry. Look, I don't want to talk out of turn, but I think you should call a meeting and put this town on alert. There's a hell of a lot of activity up there. 
Harry, I know it was intense up there, but I don't want to cause a panic over a few minor tectonic quakes. Minor? The biggest one we measured was 2.9. I don't give a damn if it was a one. Harry. One. Those quakes were shallow. Paul, damn shallow. I was up there. I felt. Harry, you don't. They weren't tectonic. They were magmatic. This thing is going to blow. Harry, I'm warning you. I'm not going to have one of my people scaring the hell out of everybody because of guesswork and hunches. Another 48 hours will tell the tale. You get ripped. You know, having nature be a force of antagonism, there's a, another great quote of yours. Quote, in these kind of disaster films, the antagonist is God instead of a European guy in a ponytail, close quote. <laughs> Where are you finding these quotes? I was, I was quite witty in my youth. In a weird way, 20 bucks was sort of training ground for it because not so much the omnibus movie, but if you think of a movie like, say, Grand Hotel, any of those classics that are sort of um, ensemble pieces, the only difference between Grand Hotel and Towering Inferno is that the hotel is not burning in Grand Hotel. But there's 12 stories being told. You know, John Barrymore's a thief who and blah, blah, you know. And so I like that sort of storytelling. The miniseries I did after that taken, you know, I was hired because uh, Steven Spielberg liked, liked Dante's Peak. And that was kind of the beginnings of that conversation was, you know, can you sort of do an ensemble-y thing like that? So I wind up in all these different genres. I think, wow, I'm doing something really fresh. And then I realize I'm doing the same thing I always do. <laughs> Little snippets of a lot of stories within a big story. Oddly, it's a weird thing to say, well, you could sort of see 20 bucks in daylight, but you sort of can I realize that research often acts as a vehicle to unlock ideas for a story you're working on. So how important is research for you? When I get an idea, I get really impatient. So I usually start to write before I know enough to be writing. I like my research to go in two sections, which is, you know, ideally, I like to see something before I start somehow. And then I like to be working so I know enough to ask the questions. In daylight, for example... I really wanted to find a way to get him out of there. So I'm, I'm going through the, the tunnel with, with Paul. We couldn't do the Holland Tunnel because Port Authority was harder. So we we're doing Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. But obviously there's places where you can get out. And I was like, was there someplace where like the workers ate lunch when they were building the thing? And he was like, oh yeah, there's this rumor in the Holland Tunnel about there were a lot of Catholics working on it. And they had a little shrine, you know? And I was like, you said what? <laughs> Okay, so here we are, we're high and dry. So what do you plan on doing? In a situation like this, I think it's very, very important that everybody knows exactly what has happened, okay? What I'm gonna try to do is collapse a section of that tube to seal us off from the fire and try to plug that leak. How do you plan to do that? I have to use an explosive. Please, please, let me explain, Another please, explosion? Please. That's your idea down here? No wonder you got people killed. If anyone has a better idea, now's the time to tell me, do you? You don't know what kind of damage this such treasure's already sustained. So how do you know you can contain it to one section? Don't know. I don't know anything. The only thing I know is we're not going to make it another hour unless I shut this thing down. Not to trash the movie, but there's another phenomenon of 80s, 90s movies is sort of Spielberg envy as opposed to penis envy. So you just want everything to be bigger so you look like Steven. You know, so from a, a little room with a way out that the rats told you about, it turned into this Indiana Jones temple of the thing that, that's silly. And I'm a huge Elmore Leonard fan. And my favorite thing is really, really small stakes. One of my favorite of his movies is Mr. Majestic. It's a Charles Bronson movie. And 
the entire plot of the movie is Charles Bronson needs to get his watermelon crop in on time. Valdez is coming. Burt Lancaster needs $10 to bury somebody. That's what I like. I don't like the world hangs in the balance. You know, so once it was the Temple of Doom, I was like, I don't know. The last thing about Daylight and what you're touching on is really the human component of this all. I didn't write it down as a quote, but I remember yesterday I was rereading an interview and you're described it so simply but beautifully in regards to having, we spoke about the ensemble piece, in regards to the stakes and losing some of these characters along the way, you said that the order in which that could happen, it's like, what is the most tragic character to be losing at this point in the story? I should qualify that by saying, I love the cool shit factor in Daylight the tunnel blows up really good. It looks, it looks terrific. I mean, it still looks terrific. And I think I mentioned this to you, like sometimes like when I'm talking to writers about screenwriting, I use that as an example of, you don't just write the dialogue because there's one line of my dialogue left in that movie. And that is, you know, the tunnel extends for 6,000, you know, it's just a descriptive thing, but every single thing that happens in the destruction of the tunnel was scripted and it happens in, in the order it was in the script. So you know, that, that's part of the job, too. And I, I love that part. I mean, it gives me a headache because I'm mechanically inept. You can explain to me over and over again how a toilet works or a car works or, or the lawnmower works. I can't fix anything. So the fact that I was doing these action set pieces is like I'm the last person you should trust to figure out how this works. But I think, you know, it's a cliche, but, you know, that stuff only matters if bad things happen to people you care about. Stepping away from Daylight specifically, I was just curious to ask about your relationship with first drafts in general. How do you go about choosing what ideas to take out and what ideas to build more on in regards to getting feedback? I'm going to quote my friend Randy Feldman, who, as I mentioned before, is a fantastic writer. And um, he said two things to me about that. One was um, about getting notes. He said, they keep on making you do it till you get it wrong. <laughs> But the other thing he, he said to me, which, you know, I, I feel this is so true of second drafts, is he said, you know, I can get it to 70, 75% for you really fast. I can do that. And then if you give me six months, I can get it back to 65. You know, say you had a job in a supermarket and your job was stacking the grapefruits and you made that beautiful grapefruit pyramid. And then your boss came in and went, this is the perfect grapefruit pyramid. This is like the best grapefruit pyramid we've, we've ever had in this market. This is stunning. Could you just move this one down here at the bottom? Well, if you did your job well, the grapefruits are all going to fall over and you're going to have to put them up again. So to my first drafts, there's a logic and a consistency even to the crap. And so I have to knock over the grapefruits a lot. And generally, my favorite grapefruit has to be thrown out. My mom once told me that if I ever wrote something, a sentence, a line of dialogue that I thought was really brilliant, I should immediately take it out because it would be sticking out like a sore thumb. <laughs> and uh, there's a certain truth to that. But one of my favorite things is to finish first draft and print it out and sit with a pen. It's relaxing to me. Up until I get the fade out, I'm nervous that I'll never get there or kind of sure that I'll just completely fuck it up somewhere in the last 10 pages. And then once I'm, once I'm done, I feel like, well, now I can fix it. Often I'm completely wrong. The dream scenario is to write it and maybe read it once and do some tweaks and then put it away for six weeks. Television, you have to use cards. It's an easy way to communicate. Your bosses often come in to see the cards. And really in, in a writer's room, it's a strange process. Everything is so worked out by the time you go off to write your script that you can write a script in a day. You know, like the, the heavy lifting has all been done. I sometimes use them on my own and sometimes I feel like 
they're sort of a cheat and I just kind of want to see what happens if I just start writing, which can be really dangerous and write yourself right into a hole you can't get out of. I don't know if I've even remotely answered your question. Absolutely. I mean, you're touching on on this whole process of structure and I feel like outlining is more important for some writers than others. I've always recognized that if you stack it up wrong in your first draft, it's going to be much harder to unbuild it and rebuild it. Absolutely. Say Elmore Leonard. I mean, as a novelist, you can use prose to get yourself out of any weird plot point. Obviously, there's a great deal that is much harder about writing a novel than about writing a screenplay. You know, and, and like in a screenplay, I can just say exterior New York day. I don't have to describe New York, but there's no prosing your way out of something that doesn't make sense in a script. So there is a lot of craft involved along with the art and the craft does sometimes require an outline, a sense of where you're going. You do not have to listen to, you know, the Robert McKees of the world. It doesn't have to be an inciting incident on page seven and three acts is kind of a myth. Shakespeare wrote in five. You know, you've got a lot of choices there. Some movies I think that are really good are written in chapters. Clearly, they're not acts. Have you ever stumbled on the Matt and Trey from South Park explain how to write? The but therefore? This is the smartest thing I've ever seen anybody say about writing. Each individual scene has to work as a kind of funny sketch. You don't want one scene that's just like, well, what what was the point of that scene? We found out this really simple rule that maybe you guys have all heard before, but it took us a long time to learn it. But we can take these beats, which are basically the beats of your outline, and if the words and then belong between those beats, you're f***ed, basically. You got, you got something pretty boring. What should happen between every beat that you've written down is either the word therefore or but. Right. So so what I'm saying is that you come up with an idea and it's like, okay, this happens. Right. And then this happens. No, no, no. It should be this happens and therefore this happens. But this happens. Therefore, this happens. And that as soon as we are able to and literally sometimes we'll we'll write it out to make sure we're doing it. uh, We'll we'll have our beats and we'll say, okay, this happened. But then this happens and that affects this and that does to that. And Uh that's why you get a show that feels like, okay, this to that, to this, to that, but this, here's the complication to that. When we talk about structure, when do you know you have enough single ideas to make up an entire movie? I think as I've done it for so long, I have a sense of when it's a movie. Because I have to say from my first script, I mean, I've written a lot of really bad stuff, but it's always been the right length. (laughs) You know, I think the only time I ever wrote a script that was too long was my first draft of the Alamo, but that was a, there was a lot of real life to get through. And also I felt like in my version of that movie, it was a two and a half hour movie, much like the John Wayne, Richard Minwer one. How do you go about applying studio notes when you're aware of the fact that the notes they're giving you are going to make the story worse? Well, first of all, I'm going to make up the percentage. 20% of the notes make it better. 20% make it worse. The remaining 60 just make it different. One of the sad things about the way the process works, because I've done a lot of what I would refer to as middle relief pitching. You know, like I come in on a movie with a producer I have a relationship with. I rewrite it for him or her. And then it goes to be made and the director brings on somebody they're comfortable with. And that can be fun. There's a producer I work with a lot. When I work with him on something I care about, I hate his notes. When I do the middle relief pitching, I'll do whatever he wants and we have fun. And what I realized is it's so much easier for him than dealing with someone who cares. 
So that's the sad part about, you know, how movies get sort of homogenized is, you know, it's a real struggle for a producer to have to give an invested writer notes. That's a fight every minute of the day. And then all of a sudden your friend Les shows up and goes, yeah, sure, whatever. And so movies are eventually made by people who don't care. It is, as Randy said, they keep on making you do it till you get it wrong. But I think, you know, the, the show you mentioned that I did for Hulu, Shut Eye, it's, it's terrible. It was a spec script. I loved it. A cast I loved. Directors I loved. And a studio or a network, I should say, that was trying to brand themselves and like realized halfway through my first cut that their brand was network TV where you could say fuck. And they did things that were just heinous. And there's no parallel universe where I could put my cut on TV and see if it did better. You know, so what do you do? You know, like, by the way, they are absolutely entitled to ruin anything they want they're paying for. It's too bad that they don't have the courage to trust creative people to be right occasionally. But I could have written it as a book and I could have self-published it and six people would have seen my version and nobody could have touched it. So you made that decision when you signed the contract and sold it. Speaking of different kind of experiences, you mentioned the show Taken mm -hmm. for which uh, Spielberg hired you back in 2002. Over the course of your meetings, what about his way of understanding storytelling brought the best out of you as a writer? I remember the first time he pitched me something enormous in a good way, not in the uh, daylight thing I was complaining about. I just remember, oh shit, you're Steven Spielberg. You know, it's a strangely intimidating world because, you know, everybody who works for him is a bit afraid to say no to him. And um, I have to say, because I, I did a, a second thing with him that, that didn't quite work out, but he had this one idea that nobody liked and the network didn't like it. And I wasn't sure about it, you know, and I had already, you know, like Taken was successful. So I had worked with him enough. So I was comfortable going, mm, I don't know. And he said, would you try it? Yeah, of course I would. I mean, you know, it's like, A, he's Steven Spielberg. B, I'm working for him. He's paying me. So I tried it and it, it had a ripple effect on six episodes of this thing. So it, it was a lot of work. And I finished and he called me and he said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Go back to what you were doing. So that's more than I've ever gotten from almost any other producer I've ever worked and I guess like, like sort of what I realized was he's the most successful person who's on my side of that desk, not the other side. You know, like he's written, he's, he's besides directing, obviously, he's written, you know, and, and so it was um, obviously super intimidating. Like when he first hired me, he was like, well, I've got 20 hours on the sci-fi channel to do alien abduction. And I was like, all I know about alien abduction is two movies you made <laughs> and some episodes of the X-Files. He was like, that's fine. <laughs> It's also, I mean, Steven Spielberg and Aliens, that's kind of, you know, a treat. I figured if we could look back at your entire career, what have you learned about the stories you like to tell? I'll just make this my swan song complaint about me. Obviously, I've seen a gazillion movies. I'm a bit obsessed with many genres. But, you know, I came up watching the movies of the 60s and 70s, which, if you think about it, they're completely a unique period because it's the only time in American movies that bad things could happen to good people. In the studio system, either love conquered all or crime did not pay. So when you went to see a James Cagney movie, you knew he was going to die. So a lot of the movies I love most 
are from that period. And, you know, they're more sophisticated. I mean, I guess you don't really know if Ingrid Bergman's going to get on the plane or stay, but still there was a system. And then coming from the eighties on, there's no chance. anything. I think that's part of the reason that we've all gravitated towards good TV is, you know, bad things happen to people in, in television. You don't know what's going to happen. Let me, I'm going to digress for a minute to give an example. Go for it. In, I don't know, 74, 75, there's a Robert Aldrich, Burt Reynolds movie called The Longest Yard. And when that movie came out, I'm sure that in the halls of Universal, they knew that bad things couldn't happen to Burt Reynolds. But when I went to see that movie, it's prisoners playing football against the guards. There were three possible outcomes to that movie that were all absolutely viable. They could win the game. They could win the game and get shot by the guards. They're trying to escape, let's kill them all, or they could lose the game. And a 70s movie often ended with the Chinatown ending. Bad things happen to good people. So there were genuine stakes when you watched that movie. By the time they got to the Adam Sandler remake of that movie, there wasn't a single person who sat down in the theater who didn't know that they would win the game and it would all work out. I think the other thing people forget about, you know, when they say how much they like 70s movies is they're talking about genre movies. A gangster movie, a private detective movie, a possession by the devil horror movie, a car chase cop movie. No one is talking about Kramer versus Kramer. They're talking about genre movies. So genre movies have good casts, complicated plots, interesting themes. All of this to say, I should have learned this in my rock and roll days. I was way too arty for the record companies and I was way too commercial for the art crowd. I always land smack dab in this. Shitty little spot in the center. <laughs> you know, so like if it's daylight, I'm going to put the gay hitman couple in there and shoot myself in the foot. But I don't want to write the quiet little art house drama about those same people. So ultimately, here's what I've learned. And I would say that the Hulu experience is the prime example that I used to spend all of my time either beating myself up because I clearly wasn't good enough or beating them all up in my mind because they were idiots. And what I finally came to accept is that the people who write the checks just don't see the world the way I do, and they never will. And I'm never going to convince them that it's my world. So I've found ways to either work in worlds where I can do whatever I want or pay my rent. You know, after the last TV show I did, I wrote two novels for Audible. So they're audio-only novels. And the first one was narrated by John Waters, which was really cool and fun. They gave me a really good editor. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't have to do notes, but the notes were things I wanted to do that made it better. And I found a place where, oh, good, I can write what I want and somebody likes it. And if you were to check out either of them, you'll see that they fall into exactly that space. They're sort of genre and they're a little bit art house. The whole point of this is I'm saying that not only my own you know, personality, but the stuff I grew up with just sort of left me in this weird spot. <laughs> Les, I am so grateful that we discussed not only film history, <laughs> but genres and, and your career. I I just want to say thank you so much for your time because this this was, was an absolute blast. Oh, it was a pleasure. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to our guests, Les Boheme and Colin Fox for calling in to record this episode as well as Marathon Management and Noble Kaplan Abrams, who helped set this all up. Also, thank you to Eric, 
who has been taking care of the final mixing ever since the beginning of this project. If you enjoy our program, please help us by subscribing to the show and leaving a review. Or share your favorite episode with a friend. It really helps cinephiles and new listeners discover the podcast. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.